coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. Are your values misaligned? That's one indicator. Are you physically exhausted by the thing? Do you lack control over what you do, how you do it, when you do it? Basically, is it tedious and repetitive and boring? That can be another indicator. Is the salary not enough? Are you not valued enough? That can be an indicator. But then the last piece is really interesting, and this is the piece people often don't wanna look at or face or deal with or acknowledge, the me piece. If you don't like your job and you're showing up tired and exhausted and annoyed and frustrated, but you're going home and binging Netflix for two hours and getting shit sleep and eating junk, that ain't on your job. That's on you. Hi, I'm Dr. Nick Holton. I am a researcher in the field of human flourishing. You can find out more about me at Dr. Nick Holton or at my website, eudaimonics.org and check out our work in athletics through the antifragileathlete.com. This is my episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high-performing individuals tick, why they do what they do, and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons, and learnings. Today we spoke with Dr. Nick Holton, Human Flourishing Thought Leader and Peak Performance Coach at the Flow Research Collective, Co-Director of Human Flourishing at the Shipley School and International Keynote Speaker. Nick's work is devoted to the study, dissemination and application of the science of human flourishing. In essence, feeling, behaving and functioning as our best self and at our highest potentials. Nick coaches educators, elite athletes and executives, and his work with the FRC is informed by principles of learning theory, humanistic psychology, motivational theory and interviewing, positive psychology coaching, cognitive behavioral skills, and context-specific application. Today we unpacked the PERMA model from positive psychology. What is the essence of human flourishing? Plus how to identify if someone is truly flourishing. Nick shared why he loves working with younger people, impacting them and the meaning of eudaimonia nick operates from the perspective offered by the famous quote from humanistic psychologist abraham maslow that the story of human beings is the story of people selling themselves short understand more about this today also please check out his podcast flourish fm and the anti-fragile athlete links in the show notes Dr. Nick Colton, thanks very much for uh, joining us on the show. We appreciate it. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it uh, right in return and looking forward to having a chat this morning. So it's nice and early for you. Where are you calling in from? So I'm in the States. I'm currently sitting in the, the western side of Michigan here in the Midwest. So born and raised here. And uh, while my wife and I are currently nomads, I've got some work in the area for my, my alma mater, Michigan State Soccer. So trying to be around those kids and those programs and um, continue all my other projects remotely, plus see some friends and family, which is nice. What are the things that Michigan is famous for? For those of us who haven't been there, for those across the Atlantic, what's what's the big thing? Well, the funny thing is always, so we are known as the Mitten State. 
right? So if you ever meet somebody from Michigan, the way you can tell that they're a true Michigander, so those listening won't be able to see this, but those watching will, is, is they'll put their hand up like this and they'll point to where they're from. So as the west side of the state, I'm from over here. Here's Detroit. Here's where Michigan State is. So that's that's how a, a Michigander really identifies themselves. But we are we're kind of like um, you might know like Cape Cod culture, kind of New England culture. We've got a lot of lakes, a lot of cottages. Um, people in Michigan say going up north, and it's known as as Michigan's Gold Coast because it's you know the Great Lakes are all fresh water. So um, it's kind of a, a hidden gem uh, that Midwesterners know about, but not too many others do. So don't spread the word too much. So just speaking to your work back in Michigan, what is it that you do day to day, Nick? There's a variety of things that I'll do day to day. They all kind of fall under a single umbrella, which is the study of human flourishing, which I'm sure we'll get into a bit more. Um, the simple way to think about flourishing is, I think, a synergy between optimization or performance, if you will, and well-being. And I do mean synergy as opposed to balance. I think they complement each other and, and have a reciprocal relationship. And so I take basically anything I can get my hands on that I'd qualify as good science um, and try to help three different audiences, really four audiences, but I'll talk primarily about three consume that science and apply it to their lives. So I, I refer to it as the three or four E's. The first E is entrepreneurs and execs. So I do a lot of executive coaching, um, group facilitation. Some of that's done privately. Some of that's done through the Flow Research Collective, which is where David and I met uh, one another. The second E is elite um, athletes. So I have a startup called the Anti-Fragile Athlete that I run with the Director of Mental Performance for the Washington Nationals. Uh, that's the outfit that's doing the work for Michigan State, among some others that we're currently talking to. Uh, and that's really kind of providing bespoke, uh, asynchronous curriculum, individual coaching, group coaching to help young athletes deal with those two kind of components I mentioned. And then the third is educators or education. I'm a lifelong educator. My PhD is at least in part in educational psychology. Um, so I'm really trying to think about how we help change schools or more specifically change school systems to be more in line with what we know about human flourishing and maybe a little less oriented towards test taking and, and those sorts of things. So those are kind of the three primary E's. And then of course I have the the podcast that that I co-host, sponsored by Harvard and Oxford, called Flourish FM. And if you want to add the fourth E, that's for everyone. That's it in a nutshell. When did flourishing become something you wanted to dig into and understand more and, and share? I think it depends on, you know, how I really think about that question and think about flourishing. Because when it comes back to, if I were to go back to like the first time I just noticed what it felt like to help somebody improve something, whatever that thing is, I can go all the way back to about 12 years old. So, you know, I was a pretty good footballer for you guys, soccer player here, could have played at the college level. Um, when I was in middle school, I think it was you know, I had some natural talent. It was already pretty clear that this would be a decent sport for me, right, to follow and pursue. Um, it was probably less clear for my youngest of my two little sisters, which is more kind of the performing arts phase, um, I think. 
And so anyway, I took her out in the driveway one day, showed her a couple things. She went out and had a game. She was in second grade, you know, a little pipsqueak, went right up against this bruiser of a boy twice her size and just wrecked him, just crushed him, scored a couple goals, had a great game. And I distinctly remember um, naively and arrogantly looking at that situation and correlating it with our session that morning and then feeling like, oh, I did that, right? I helped that person essentially be happier, right? For, for whatever, you know, um, that might mean. I think years later, um, when I was in high school, I job shadowed an uncle who's an athletic director. Um, you know, I, I don't know how much of your audience is European, American, whatever, but an athletic director here in the States, just at a, in a school system oversees all the sports teams, logistics, fields, those sorts of things. And so I got to watch him be on the other side of these really positive, like teacher student relationships, mentor athlete relationships, coach athlete relationships. And I kind of looked at that and thought, well, he gets to have that feeling I had with my sister in the driveway every day. I want to do that. Right. And so that brought me into education. I got into education, as you might expect. Um, it is not all it's, you know, maybe cracked up to be when you're idealizing it. So I eventually went back to for two different graduate degrees, uh, basically with an intellectual itch. Right. It was kind of like this ain't it this is not as good as it gets. There has to be a better system for actualizing human potential and like pulling the, just the best stuff, the best shit out of these young people who have a ton to give. If you can find it, if you can tap into it. Right. Um, and I wanted answers to that question. And so one thing led to another, but that is eventually what moved me towards concepts like flow, optimization, intrinsic motivation, well-being, positive psychology, flourishing. And, um, that was about a decade ago. And, and, you know, the rest is history, as they say. You mentioned you're searching for answers, looking for that intellectual curiosity. Where are you now in terms of that? Do you feel like you've, you have aligned that pathway and you feel like that itch is still being scratched almost and it's enhancing what you're trying to do? What is it currently sitting for you right now? Yeah, both. I think um, I am fortunate enough to have found passion and purpose at a young age. And I think that passion has been further clarified. Um, and when I say further clarified, like there's, I like to think I've acquired a decent amount of knowledge that can help people in a variety of ways. Um, but this is the sort of passion and purpose that has no endpoint, mm -hmm. which is really important. Because if you look at some of the research on intrinsic motivation, Daniel Pink always says this well, that when he breaks down intrinsic motivation, he talks about one of the components, which is mastery. And he says mastery is asymptotic. So if you remember math class, an asymptote is a it's a curved line that will approach a straight line, but never intersect it. Mm -hmm. It will go on to infinity without actually touching, right? And he's he's just using an analogy to say like mastery is something that's not achieved. It's something that can constantly be pursued. And so that's how I think about this endeavor. It's like we're never going to get there. We're never going to have all the answers. Um, it's a little little like Sisyphus, I suppose, although I don't feel like the ball's rolling down the hill that much, right? I'm just constantly pushing it. <laughs> There's been loads of research in the last couple of years because of COVID into burnout and people yeah. struggling with the hybrid world and be that in sport or business. How can we identify people that are doing really well? As you said, flourishing. What is it about that space that we can look to somebody and say, Wow, they're they're they've got it. They've got it all together. 
Yeah. That's a great question. I, I think I would answer it in three parts and sort of kind of increasing levels of granularity. The first part is there are some theories out there, like one from Corey Keyes comes to mind that would suggest you can be flourishing amidst a mental illness, right? That it's not an either or, that it's a both and, right? Now it's science. We've watched the last couple of years with COVID. Everything gets debated in science. But this is a really interesting perspective, and I think lends itself to the the second answer that I'll give, which is when we say folks that have it all together, and then you think, well, what does that mean? And you look at it on a concrete level, like we measure human flourishing. Usually what that means is on a scale of one to 10, for all the different ingredients that make up a flourishing life, they're scoring sevens and eights. You don't really find many people, and if you do, they tend to be statistical outliers that are just tens across the board, right? And even then, you have to add the question of of time and place to it. So are they tens across the board all day, every day? Are they tens across the board on that day and time that you got them, right? It's it's different than wearing, say, an aura ring or a whoop band that's giving you sort of real-time, constant, updated data, so there's some limitations to like the the depiction we can really get into a person's life, but sevens and eights, like things are generally pretty good in these core areas. And so these core areas is the third answer. It's the most granular. What are these areas? Was, the, really... quest, was the question that would have been next. So thanks. <laughs> okay, perfect. Great. Great. So there's, again, being science, there's so many different ways you can conceptualize well-being. There's so many different ways you could conceptualize performance. And so there's a lot of different ways you could conceptualize human flourishing. Right? Um, I'm going to speak to, I think, the two most predominant that use the exact language of flourishing, but I'll give a little bit of background first. Different, some of the primary forms of happiness, if you will, or well-being that a lot of folks study, you would commonly know as probably hedonia. You've maybe heard hedonism, the hedonic treadmill, right? This is a ratio of pleasantness to unpleasantness. So in a moment, if you feel relatively pleasant, that doesn't mean positive necessarily, that doesn't mean necessarily it's good, but if you feel relatively pleasant, you're gonna report being hedonically happy or well. The second one is what I wrote my dissertation on, which is eudaimonia or eudaimonia, depending on how you wanna pronounce it. That's more of a meaning-based happiness, like cultivate what's good in me, figure out how to contribute it to we, right? Me plus we. So it's a purpose and meaning and virtue cultivation piece. You've got subjective well-being, which is part hedonia, part life satisfaction. You've got life satisfaction as a completely separate measure that's going to be more stable, right? One of your athletes loses a match. Um, He's probably going to be hedonically unhappy in that moment. Does that change his overall life satisfaction? Probably not. Probably depends on the game. The title game, maybe, right? Something like that like some of the smaller nuances. And the reason I I lead with that is when you look at one of the predominant models of human flourishing out of the University of Pennsylvania's Positive Psychology Center, uh, it's called PERMA, P-E-R-M-A. And you usually are going to see a V or an H at the end of it as well. And so the P stands for pleasant emotion. Well, that's hedonia. We know that for most people, a flourishing life means a preponderance of pleasantness. That does not mean, and this is a really important nuance, that does not mean pleasantness exclusively. 
and all of the time. It just means there's a lot of it, right? Like there's a lot of reasons to feel good a lot of the time. Um, so that's hedonia. The E is engagement. This is the flow state, right? This is deep immersion. This is the development of character and achieving coherence and behaving in ways that we feel like our values aligned, right? That's eudaimonia. Right? So both are sort of embedded into this model. But then there's the other things in life that matter a great deal. The R, relationships. Single <laughs> greatest, there you go. Yep, <laughs> you do, right? Single greatest predictor of well-being globally, right? Or ill-being. Like the opposite of this, loneliness is actually toxic. It can do more harm than you've probably seen some of these meta-analysis. Smoking, for instance, right? Um, obesity, environmental pollution, like loneliness is physically more dangerous to the body, which is fascinating. One of the other greatest predictors of, of well-being worldwide is meaning, connection to something greater than ourselves. That's the M in PERMA. Uh, and under that would be purpose. The A is achievement or accomplishment. This is an interesting distinction because the second model for human flourishing, which comes out of Harvard's human flourishing program, does not include achievement does not include accomplishment, right? Um, it could be a pathway towards well-being, but it's not an end in and of itself. Right? And part of that, I think the rationale is, um, it's a term called hedonic adaptation. So you, your listeners, your athletes, right? Me as well, you, you do something that brings pleasantness. So, you know, you score the goal, you accomplish the goal, you buy a new thing, right? Car, house, whatever it might be. Those things feel good, but inevitably you adapt to them and then you move the bar. It's on to the next thing, right? So achievement is kind of a step ladder, but not necessarily the destination, if that makes sense, right? These other things are destinations in and of themselves. And then the V or the H, if you see it, would be vitality or health. So the core stuff, sleep, nutrition, movement, you know, breath work, hydration, those sorts of things, right? So th those give you kind of six core ingredients. Harvard's model is a little different, but the, the two consistent overlaps you're going to see are the two things that I mentioned um, sort of kind of create the most juice for the squeeze, which is relationships and meaning. So we've looked into PERMA a little bit. I don't think we've had it described and broken down as well as that. So Oh, great. Yes, well, he has already oh, been talking awesome. to you, I think. <laughs> I, I have already, Nick. Everyone listening, Nick's helped me a lot on Perma. So <laughs> great, great. Well, I should I should mention, I mean, the UPenn has a great shop, and I started working with them years ago when I was at, in Los Angeles for a different school, and uh, they do some excellent work. So anything I'm sharing is really, you know, kind of a result of of their excellent research. And anyone interested in in checking them out more should go to uh, their center. I think it's upenpodpsych.com or something like that. Great stuff there. Yeah, check out Dr. Seligman's work as well, books, Flourish, and, and other pieces. Looking into PERMA for yourself, how do you chase positive relationships, engagement, and these, these other things in your day-to-day? -day? Yeah, it's a great question. When I'm, when I'm working with clients or groups, we can do this in steps incrementally, right? So the first piece is if these are the ingredients, if there's six to eight different ingredients, depending on which model you're using, mm -hmm. right? So those ingredients are going to be character, virtue, meaning and purpose, relationships, emotional agility. So not only having the pleasantness, but having the skills to navigate unpleasantness and grow from unpleasantness, right? These are also good signs of psychological health, right? 
You can find interesting studies that will show associations between high levels of comfort and ill being as if people who get too comfortable can't handle adversity when it does inevitably strike, right? So having that emotional agility, but whatever these ingredients are, okay, so there's these eight ingredients, what's your recipe? Like that's got to determine everything else, right? For some people, that's going to be high on engagement and achievement and meaning, they might, you know, they might be more introverted. And while they need relationships, they don't need to be out and about socializing all the time, right? For some people, it's going to be a lot of meaning and spirituality. Maybe it's going to be oriented in physical health and vitality. They're not so worried about the pleasant emotion, right? They're the, I don't know, they're the David Goggins of the world. Like, let's just, let's just go, right? <laughs> sort of guys. Okay. Either way, right. Either way, what's the recipe? So once you've got the recipe, then you can start to say, okay, in order to live this recipe and actualize this recipe, cook it, if you will, I've got to distribute. First, I got to figure out how much of each ingredient I want. And then I've got to distribute my most precious resources to make that happen. And my most precious resources are my time, my attention, my energy, my emotion, my cognition, right? And so then it becomes, all right, well, how do I want to distribute those things? And at, at that point, I encourage people to start playing Tetris, I say. You've got these different blocks, these different pieces that help you play the game. Your morning routines, your deep work blocks, your exercises, your gratitude practice, the type of meals you eat, nutrition, hydration, your socialization time financial success and material stability, all those sorts of things. What way do you want to play the game to bring all those things together and actualize that recipe? And that doesn't necessarily mean living the same way day after day after day, right? It, for some people that I've worked with, it's grinding for five weeks straight and then taking a full week off, right? For a lot of us, it's the traditional work week, but then the weekends are off, right? Uh, Sometimes it might be work months and then you switch things up a little. I, I mentioned I'm in Michigan, right? Part of that is I've lived away from Michigan for 15 years. And so this is an opportunity at a point in my life where I can work remotely to spend time with grandparents, to spend time with parents, to spend time with nieces, high school and college friends, be around the, the kids that I'm working with, right? Those sorts of things. I'm getting a lot of that juice right now because I'm probably not going to get a ton of it for a six month period after, right? So being creative with the way you use time and you distribute your most precious stuff, right? It might be robotically, repetitively day after day, but it might be something very unique to the individual. You mentioned it there and you mentioned obviously the anti-fragile piece earlier. What is it about education and, and kids or younger people that is is a space that you're obviously you've been in for so long. What are you, what is it in terms of the meaning, the impact? They usually need help. I mean, most of us need help, but young people especially, right? And there's so much potential there, um, where you get maybe a little bit more discipline and motivation and thought from adults. You get a lot more enthusiasm and optimism and idealism from young people. Right. And for me, it's not really just about like sports or education. It's about like, well, what would the world look like if we were producing hundreds of thousands of young people every day 
every year, I should say, that not only feel better, but perform better. And as a consequence of both of those things are typically better human beings as well, right? Like take care of others and look out for others because they're secure and they have self-esteem and they don't have to want for a whole lot and they know how to strive and endure unpleasantness. And even something as simple as like having a political conversation, even though it's uncomfortable, right? And being able to navigate things like that. And so the sports piece, um, in many ways, Adam and I talk about this a lot. It's a Trojan horse. What we do is teach skills that can help you in almost any walk of life. But we're trying to get it to young people through sports because it's something they love. And it's a vessel through which they want more information that will help them do that thing they love better. Right. So we're, we're hoping that that's a better fit. Um, and so far, that's certainly what we're finding as well. I'm just thinking to even my experience. So a few years ago, a good while now, I worked a job that I didn't feel connected to. I was probably on public transport sitting, going home, thinking, ah, oh, this is quite dull. Not looking forward to tomorrow already. I've just finished and I'm trying to chase a little bit of happiness in my evening, a little bit of enjoyment. What do you say to people in terms of doing a self audit to try and understand, okay, why am I feeling like this? Is it the meaning of the job? Is it just the situation that I'm in? Have I not prepared myself with my behaviors around that job? That's the real issue. What, yeah. What's your first point of call for maybe the athletes or people you work with in terms of doing a self-audit? That's a great question. It's hard to narrow that down to like what would be the first because those relationships, I think, often are not linear. They're more kind of a web of connection. So as soon as you brought that up, my head went to something like our, you know, you mentioned burnout earlier. Are your values misaligned? That's one indicator, right? Are you physically exhausted by the thing? That's another indicator. Do you lack control over what you do, how you do it, when you do it? Basically, is it tedious and repetitive and boring? That can be another indicator. Is the salary not enough? Are you not valued enough? That can be an indicator. I think the tricky part about any question of, let's say, well-being or maybe the opposite, which would be burnout, right, in a work context is it's important to understand that with whatever you're thinking about doing, boosting well-being, reducing burnout, you really, in my opinion, have to apply three lenses to it. And this speaks to how somebody might respond. I call these lenses me, we, and the. So the we piece is what's your organization or club or job or franchise or community, right? What policies are in place? What culture and climate is there? that impacts well-being and or burnout. That's a we issue. That's a global issue, right? Um, global in that it applies to the entire group, right? On a systems level. The V piece is how you interact, right? Interpersonal relationships with one or more individuals around you, right? So how do I engage with V, right? And this is interesting stuff because it was what, the 2018... United Nations Wellbeing Report put out a chapter on jobs. Interpersonal relationships was the strongest predictor of workplace satisfaction globally on average, right? So liking the people we work with and for, this is a big deal as well. And by the way, one of the indicators of burnout I didn't mention was a lack of community, like social isolation, which is interesting in a COVID and hybrid world. But then the last piece is really interesting. And this is the piece people often don't want to look at or face or deal with or acknowledge the me piece. If you don't like your job and you're showing up tired and exhausted and annoyed and frustrated, 
but you're going home and binging Netflix for two hours and getting shit sleep and eating junk, that ain't on your job. That's on you. That's a me problem, right? Like we cannot abdicate any responsibility whatsoever. So this is why I think all three lenses matter, right? There's how you interact with people. There's how the system impacts you and vice versa, but you do have some efficacy and locus of control in this scenario as well. And so an example of that and where that, that tension is, if you want to change something because you're unsatisfied with how it's playing out, the question I would ask is, do you need to change yourself first or the situation or your relationship to the situation? You can find a cab driver who loves their job and finds deep meaning and purpose in it. And I'm that's not me saying just be grateful and suck it up and deal with the drudgeries of, you know, the corporate Western world and all those sorts of things. Right. But it, but it, it's the reality. There's just simple facts, right. That some people are able to find meaning and purpose in their work. And I would nudge you to figure out, is it because of a lack of interest? Is it because of a lack of values or are you doing things to yourself? That's just hindering your ability to like crush it and enjoy anything. There's so much in that for people that are even going through tough moments that are a bit overbearing or they feel it's come on them or it's nearly them just again in terms of framing it so nick really yeah. really practical there's a quote that usually we do a summary piece at the start and we go, we're going to mention it there but abraham maslow a lot of people have heard of him in the hierarchy of, of needs and a quote that we can see kind of referenced in a lot of your work the story of human beings is the story of people selling themselves short we both wrote it on as the prep piece. We're like, we really, really resonate. We really love that. What is it about that? And could you unpack as to what that means for you? Yeah, when I when I think of the quote and I try to consider the context of Maslow and who he was and the work he did, right? And um, some of your listeners might know Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, who's big in this world um, and has, has become a friend of mine. He's got a great book, Transcend that basically revisits Maslow's needs um, and then layers on 50 years of psychological and neuroscientific research on top of that and kind of puts out what he calls this sailboat metaphor, right? But point being is Scott and I have talked about this a lot. When I, when I think of selling ourselves short, I don't necessarily think of achievement and quote unquote potential as in like, what can you go out and do? But who can you be? And that might be transcending the self a bit and finding ways to positively impact the world, right? And community and have giving behaviors and, and coexist a little more, a little better, maybe, right? And that's not at the exclusion of core needs. That's not at the exclusion of self-interest. But to me, it means like become sort of everything that we often think of as good in a human being, Right. That like if you were to go around to most cultures, most philosophies, most religious orientations, and I've studied a lot of these different things, most people would be like, yeah, I'd like a human being to have some of that and do some of that. Right. That's how I think of it. Um, and so whether, you know, it's like Scott, which would call that, you know, transcendence or Maslow would call it self-actualization or I might call it flourishing. It's, you know, feel good, be good, do good. We want to order that cap. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, I'm going to trademark it right now. Absolutely. We can, we can split that the into the online shop. Yeah. Next. yeah, like it. Yeah. Yeah. So just jumping into 
flow a little bit. You mentioned it earlier and you're obviously working with Flow Research Collective. How important is it that we seek flow on a day-to-day basis for individuals who got into the zone at some stage in their life, aren't sure really what it was or how important it can be in their day-to-day? Depends on your recipe, I think. So like, let's, let's say that everyone's the same and hold human beings constant, which is not the case, right? We're extraordinarily diverse, which is why I mentioned the recipe. But let's, let's just say that most people's recipes are, are pretty similar. Um, flow is highly associated with well-being. Right. You're good. In order to get a lot of it, you typically need good intrinsic motivation, have a good sense of purpose, a certain level of esteem because you have to develop certain competencies to engage in that thing. So it brings a lot of good stuff. Right. Um, And at the same time, that doesn't mean everybody's recipe is dependent upon having those experiences. So you mentioned Dr. Martin Seligman earlier. Um, so I've gotten a chance to know Marty a little bit, but I'll reference his 2005 TED talk where he sort of introduced this idea of positive psychology. It was a really young field at the time, still relatively young field. And when he was talking about the engaged life, right, which is eudaimonic, right, which is a life about sort of deep engagement and growth, not necessarily hedonism, right? You could get pleasant emotion from this engaged life, but those aren't necessarily... This isn't, you know, always drinks at the pub with the boys and, you know, debauchery and like, you know, kind of guilty pleasures and those sorts of things. He has a good friend or had a good friend, Len, who was a champion bridge player, I believe a football player. He was a stock market trader and he scored really, really low on what's known as an affectivity scale, which basically means like he struggles to experience a whole lot of intense emotion, I think, on either end of the spectrum. Right. Right. But Marty describes this friend as extraordinarily happy because he had a preponderance of flow and he could get lost and have these meaningful, immersive moments, which Scott might call transcendent moments, right? Where you go beyond the self and are just a part of what you're doing. You're not, you're not outside yourself thinking, I'm doing this. You exist as one with the experience and it just flows from you, which is more or less how it got its name, right? So it kind of depends on the recipe. I certainly encourage people to get a bunch of it. I think it feels great. I think it's highly rewarding for a lot of folks, but I but I don't want to send the message that you have to have it to be well, right? Or happy. What's next on the journey for you, Nick? Lots of exciting things. Obviously, you're interested in still answering some questions. What's next on the horizon for you? Yeah, I think um you, you asked earlier about, you know, how people think about and divide up their resources or time. And so for me, um, the vast majority of it work-wise is spent doing, but I do try to reserve time throughout the week for learning as well to try to stay on the front edge of some of these things. So um, I think you'd appreciate this, David, being a physio, but just trying to understand more of the body-mind piece and some of the synergy there, that's a weak point for me. Right. Um, I think looking beyond the me and focusing more on we groups, teams, group flow, those sorts of things. Um, there's a lot of potential there. There's plenty of unanswered questions on the individual level as well. Um, you know, what's next for us is trying to figure out how to get this into as many people's sort of hands and heads as possible, right? And so what that means is I continue to work with different schools. Yesterday, I gave a keynote to a school in Hong Kong, tried to share some of these ideas, maybe do some professional development with them. 
Uh, Dr. Adam Wright, my my business partner with the Anti-Fragile Athlete and I are currently talking to a couple different schools as well as a, um, a professional sports franchise about doing some curriculum work for them. And then, of course, my ongoing work with the Flow Research Collective um, and some of the execs, entrepreneurs and, and high performers there. So just keep plugging away in those three areas and trying to figure out, I think, where can have a very significant, tremendous impact without sacrificing quality and nuance in terms of the science, right? And what that means going forward. Yeah, that's brilliant. And plenty of exciting tasks and missions there. With the episode, just thanks very much for a lot of insights, a lot of practical insights. I have one more question. It's the big one we ask everyone who comes on the show. What does high performance mean to you, Nick? To me, it means um, whatever the standard is, whatever the recipe is for a good life, And that's going to be different for everybody, as I've said, right? But whatever that standard is, whatever that recipe is, I would measure performance by sort of the extent to which you are able to execute and live that life, right? And to be clear, and I mentioned this a little earlier with the flourishing metric, I don't know that that's always going to be a 100% out of one. In fact, I know it's not going to be. It might never be a 100% out of 100%, right? But more often than not, more days than not, more mornings than not, more weekends, trips, whatever it might be, are you cooking that recipe, right? Do you know what it is? Do you know how you want to go about it? And are you executing on it and sticking to it? And when you don't, have a little bit of self-compassion. But when you feel that unpleasant emotion, more often than not, that's for a reason, right? There's a lack of coherence between the type of life you want to live and the life you're actually living, right? Like we've all been there. We get on our phone and all of a sudden you end up on social media. You scroll it for 45 minutes. You pick your head up and say, shit, I just wasted my time. Now I feel like an awful human being and it spirals from there. Don't beat yourself up over it, but that unpleasant emotion is typically a signal saying like, you know, get your shit together. You you want to be doing this differently. So let's do something about it, right? So starting with that, like, what's the standard? What's that core? And, and how much am I deviating from that versus kind of sticking to it day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year? Dr. Nick Holton, thanks very much for giving us so much. Again, just echo what Kieran said, wishing you all the very best. Stay My well, pleasure, stay guys. Happy. Yeah, thank you so much. Same to you. It was a pleasure being on and uh, enjoyed chatting with you. Happy to do it again sometime. Sounds good. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.